Aloha, this is Catherine Cruz. It is Tuesday, October 31st. Happy Halloween. Mahalo for joining us here on The Conversation, Hawaii Talks. With no ceasefire in sight, friends and relatives of a Hawaii woman caught in Gaza worry for her safety as the situation there grows more dire. We'll hear from the family and share a recording of Okamura's recent experience sheltering during the conflict. Wildfire risks abound. A remote area of Mililani is still burning, some 260 acres in a 24-hour period. We discuss safety for our communities with the West Oahu lawmaker. Growing up, we talk growing food vertically, not horizontally, and in shipping containers, no less. It is called freight farming. Can it work here in Hawaii? Plus, we continue our StoryCorps Military Voices Initiative series featuring local voices and their experience serving our country. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Asking Israel for a ceasefire now is like asking the U.S. for a ceasefire following the attack on Pearl Harbor or the World Trade Center on 9-11 in New York. That is what Israeli President Benjamin Netanyahu said this week, according to news reports. A ground assault into Gaza is in its fifth day. The drama is very real for relatives of humanitarian aid worker uh, Ramona Okumura. The former Hawaii resident's family has been waging a campaign for a ceasefire to bring Auntie Ramona home safely to the U.S. We talked to one of her nieces, Kemi Hyatt, about the deteriorating situation. It has really gone from an uh, initial period of fear and shock which the fear remains, but now going into the third week that she has been trapped with really on the ground, no change, no update of when can she leave? When can there be a plan to evacuate citizens? Or like, what is any current discussion that might be happening is not something we have access to. And we know that it is complex and nuanced and is taking place at a high level. But there is a sense of just how much longer is this going to take? Is it actually going to happen? I think that there was a an urgency and a, a kind of like mobilization of all of our energy around getting the message out, which we continue to really do day by day. But we are increasingly also feeling unheard um, and we are increasingly fearful for her safety, given the lack of supplies, lack of food, lack of water and, you know, others who are all also trying to escape this war zone. Well, you know, we've been contacted by some of the people that she went to college with, you know, when they heard about her plight, and they were wanting to do what they could. And and I think they were trying to get in touch with their lawmakers as well to call for a ceasefire. Yes, we have heard from a lot of people who have been very actively contacting their representatives, and those representatives have responded. And my stepsister and cousin were also able to go to D.C. and meet with senators themselves. And so we know that they are hearing us and they are aware of her. What was your reaction, you know, when you heard that Israel is planning to go ahead with this ground assault and they were saying that now is not the time for a ceasefire? Well, our primary reaction is concern for her safety. As Israel advances in the ground invasion, there will be more people who are attempting to 
safely because we're all still being told to wait near the border. And yet without an update of when that can happen, there's a high density of people who are in desperate condition. And I think that we really fear that just because of the lack of humanitarian aid and the lack of supplies that people have already become very desperate and that she would be caught in the middle of that. So she might not even be hurt or attacked by any of the parties involved in the war, but she might just be hurt because of the the direness of the situation there, um, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, you know, I imagine, though, that this has just been torture for your family because you don't want her to, you know, end up just being, you know, collateral damage in this conflict. Yes. We really have been living in this way for about three weeks now, and it's certainly been very trying. Um, a lot of different emotions, you know, like fear and, and panic and anxiety, especially when we weren't able to have uh, contact with her. And also frustration and at the, at the kind of lack of progress, but also encouragement at the response that we have gotten from our representatives and the response that, you know, even from afar, she has, you know, connected with so many people who are um, wanting to see her home. Well, I think the fact that you folks have been able to highlight the work that she does there, working with children, you know, who need artificial limbs, and, and that's why she was there, to, to help the children. Yeah, yes. She really has worked in Gaza for years now, building prosthetic limbs for children who have, some of these children are people she's worked with for, for years, outfitting them as they grow and need new prosthetics. And I think that what we're sort of experiencing now is another war where her services will still be needed even more than they were before. So aside from our, our concern for her safety, we also know that she's very dedicated to her mission and she wants to still be able to continue to do this work. And so do all of the other aid workers that she's with. So it is really for a humanitarian purpose. It is not people who are, you know, in any way involved in military activities. It's uh, it's for kids. So it's really just heartbreaking, I think, and sometimes feels very incomprehensible and, and senseless to us um, that this is a situation that we're in. Well, you know, when I was talking to your uncle, Miles, uh, you know, I think at the time, Ramona's cell phone was not working too well. And so there was, you know, very limited communication. But you folks recently were able to hear her voice. You know, what was that like for mm. your family? It was emotional. I think that it was comforting to hear her voice. We had asked her and she was finally able to send through some voice recordings and a statement of, of what she's experiencing. She also was able to send through some uh, ambient noise of which, in which you can hear the sound of rockets being launched and also just her, her breathing kind of in, also in the background. So it really brings to life in a way what she must be going through every day and, um, and I think that hopefully we can have as many people as possible hear her story, hear as if they were there and understand how serious this is and how important it is for our government to prioritize the evacuation of Americans in Gaza, just as they have helped facilitate evacuations of Americans in Israel and evacuations of Americans in other situations that were very high intensity. Well, you know, as you see your aunt in this position, I mean, gosh, I mean, growing up with her, you know, what did you see her as, like a kind of a, a superwoman, you know, just going to all these places and, and doing this good work? 
I didn't grow up with her because she became my aunt through marriage. But oh, okay. I've always I've always known her to be um, just incredibly firm and and strong. Like even in this in this crisis, she's been so calm. She's kind of kept us calm in a way. I think that her experience being in, in these places before has kind of prepared her in a certain way. And uh, she feels very strongly about the work that she does. And she's also, you know, a woman of faith. And um, I'm sure she she must be scared, but she doesn't, she doesn't show that to her family. And I think that's what's helped us be able to continue kind of moving forward with her, her, her message, which has been very clear from the beginning. So you're just basically in contact with what a text kind of like every day just to make sure she's okay? We have a group, a sort of family chat that's encrypted that she feels is safe. And mm. uh, we get uh, sort of brief check-ins from her and also sometimes through um, satellite phones that go to other members of the family. So we know that she's she's able to communicate with us, right. she's able to update us on the situation. And so that removes a lot of the fear of the unknown. That was Kemi Hyatt, niece of former Hawaii resident Ramona Okamura. The humanitarian worker was in Gaza helping to fit artificial limbs on children who've lost their arms and legs in the conflict. The family lost uh, contact with Okamura following a communications blackout last week, but they were able to reestablish contact over the weekend, and they managed to get this audio recording from Okamura to share with others. Besides food and water insecurity for the 32 NGO members, and 20 support staffers and families with whom I am sheltering, and location insecurity from the thousands of IDPs outside our gated area. There is the almost constant vibration and noise from jets flying overhead, bombs and missiles hitting all around us at all hours of the day and night. I have a really hard time understanding why, after more than three weeks, the U.S. has not been able to negotiate a ceasefire for me and the other 500 Americans trapped in this war zone to allow us to leave safely. I am in Rafa waiting for the border to open. After more than three weeks of thousands of explosions in Rafa, I can't believe the State Department's advice is to wait in Rafa near the border while all the bombs, missiles, and shells from the sea are hitting everywhere in Rafa. And yet they say they're carefully monitoring the situation here. What's with that? On reduced rations, we have maybe seven days of food left. Gaza will have no food after a few days for the 2.3 million people trapped here with me, almost half of whom are children. Please tell the U.S. to broker a ceasefire to stop this massacre of children. A friend told me that the more than 3,000 innocent dead Palestinian children are in a place where they no longer suffer. How many more children will find their only peace by dying? That was Ramona Okamura, a humanitarian aid worker trapped in Gaza, Gaza and who uh, is just now miles from the Egyptian border. We talked to one of her nieces, Oahu resident Akemi Hyatt, yesterday afternoon about the drama playing out across the other side of the world. At last check this morning, Okamura was on the move to another location closer to the border. This 
is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. Today is Halloween, and Hawaii is no stranger to spooky stuff and urban legends. Probably the most well-known story is, don't take pork over the Pali Highway. Many believe that those who do and disregard this advice will have their cars stall out, and they'll only be able to restart when the pork is thrown out. Locals also know not to take lava rocks from the islands, or they'll be cursed by the fire goddess Pele. And speaking of Pele, many Big Island residents know that uh, to offer a ride to any elderly Hawaiian woman they see walking on the other side of the road, uh, it's because she's likely Pele in disguise, and to ignore her would cause you to be cursed. And don't forget about the night marchers, the ghosts of old Hawaiian warriors. Some claim to have heard their drumming and conch shells blowing at night. One more recent ghost story involves the haunting of a popular hangout spot in East Oahu that first came light uh, came to light in the 1950s. For today's Backyard Quiz, can you tell us the name of that spot in Kahala where a faceless ghost was said to appear in the ladies' restroom? <laughs> Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right wins a reusable HPR tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing homeless families with access to affordable housing, such as women in need on Kauai. NairitHawaii.com. A wildfire in central Oahu burned 260 acres overnight, and it's not out yet. It's not threatening homes, and it's in a remote area, but it's a reminder of the threat that is out there. Just a week ago, members of the West Side community took a tour of Kolikoli Pass. The military says it is willing to allow emergency access for the public should the need arise for an escape route uh, for the community. We talked to Honolulu City Council member Andrea Topola about the MOU, the Memorandum of Understanding, that would allow for it. I've been on the Kolikoli Pass tour a handful of times as a representative, multiple times as a council member, but I felt like it was the first time that I had really heard them be more open to civilian access. And no doubt the change in the conversation happened because of Bali. Yes. And, you know, right now we've got a wildfire in Midalani Mauka, and that just, I think, drives home the risk that we live with because of this drought situation. And of course, those communities like your district, you know, which is just drier, uh, I mean, that's just always a fear. 
Yep, it, it has been. Last night when I came home, I could smell smoke all throughout the valley and it was hazy. And I, I kept looking around to see if there was a fire near us. So I turned on the news and found that it was over the mountain. And I was like, oh, gosh, wow, it must be so strong for it to be all over the White and I coast that you can smell it everywhere. It's definitely been a concern. And when we had a city council hearing on the safety of, you know, the community for fires, every example they brought up of large wildfires that they had to put out all happened on the west side. I do remember, you know, uh, over the years covering news, one time there was a fire, I think, in Wailua, and there was ash that was coming over on the west side, just blanketing cars. It was just incredible. When you were at that briefing, you know, with the Army, what were the signs that you felt that things were different? Well, every time I've been in the process of the MOU, which the very first one I was a part of was in 2015 after I got elected, you know, they had only closed the road in 2011. So if you can imagine 2011 and prior, they did have some form of access, whether it was military or that civilians could drive through. So after 2011, they closed it, said that the road was impassable, that without funding, they wouldn't be able to upkeep it. Here we are in 2015, we're about to sign the MOU, and they were very, very clear. The only people that can go through the pass would be emergency vehicles. It would be trucks, ambulances, fire trucks, handy vans, buses. So in 2017, they did a tabletop exercise where they ran all of those vehicles through the pass just to ensure that it it could still be done if there was an emergency. But they were very clear at the tabletop exercise, which I also attended that, that it would only be emergency vehicles. And then I go to this uh, meeting last week, and many of the scenarios that were brought up were evacuating people. Because what happened in Maui, they had to evacuate civilians, not bring in and bring out emergency vehicles. They had to remove people. So as people went around the room and asked questions, of course, the military said, if we were told you know, by the local government that we needed to do this, we would not stand in the way. And, you know, the attorney general and other people who were legal minds in the room said, well, that's not what the MOU says. The MOU says, you know, emergency vehicle access only. So is are we adhering to this? They said, yes, we're going to adhere to the MOU, but we will not stand in the way of life and safety. And so they talked about how these scenarios of, you know, removing people out of the community, that they would have to start to go through those in addition to just emergency vehicles, which, to be honest, every other time I've done this tour, they've never added that component in, ever. And I brought up the importance that in 2002, 2004, 2007, we've had various instances where they've opened Kole Kole and they've had to let people through because you couldn't get into White and I. We had down poles. We had three solo bike officers that got killed at Honokai Hale. We had flooding. We had a, a shooting standoff in Nanakuli where nobody could pass on the road because someone was barricaded in. So all of that to be said, I told them we cannot just worry about one direction because you guys are talking about evacuating people out of White and I. I'm saying that in all of those instances, people couldn't get back home. And they were like, oh, oh, I was like, yeah. So you need to think about egress and ingress when we're talking about being unable to enter your community. And of course, the reason why they had to open it is because there were so many kids that had gotten out of school and it was six, seven at night and they were still at school, but their parents couldn't come home from work. So this is really huge to have this acknowledgement that in the event of, you know, something awful happening out there, if we needed to move 
communities out that they're willing to do their part? Yeah, no. And every instance that I just um, mentioned, I think they got it open within an hour. So we actually have the timelines of when the fatality happened or the polls were down and the amount of time it took them to open Kole Kole and then allow people through. So I would say that not only has the military acknowledged that they're going to be helpful, but they've also acknowledged that they're going to move expeditiously to assist. And that's that's a big deal. And I think the the further point that never got addressed that still to this day needs to be addressed is that that road cannot be kept the way it is without an annual appropriation of federal funding to upkeep it. So my next move is to really get on board with Senator Schatz about this. Again, I've brought out former Kaika Hale, former Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard. Um, I believe um, current Congresswoman Jill Tokuda has been up there, but we need solid funding because like any other road, when you don't upkeep it, it'll slowly start to degrade. Well, I've only been uh, through Kolikoli Pass twice. One was, I think, for the fun run uh, and the walk. And then I was there covering it for news following a landslide. And they reopened, they cleared it, they reopened the road. And, you know, we were going through it. And once we got out they closed it again because there was another landslide. And I just remember thinking, wow, we got out of there in the nick of time. And thank goodness that we didn't get hurt. So there are those hazards that you have to deal with as well. So there's a reason if they have to close it is because trespass is not safe. You know, going through there is could be a problem as well. Yeah, there's a washed out portion on the Army side that they showed us last week. And then, of course, there were rocks along the road on the Navy side that had just recently fallen. And the Navy has been using their current maintenance budget to try to clear off rocks and keep the road open in case of emergency. But to your point is that the mitigation of the rocks and the land on the left and the right side, depending on which way you're going up the road, that that takes more than just maintenance money. I mean, that would either have to be like a gate or a fence that holds up the rocks or it would have to be actually excavating some of the rocks that are hanging that could potentially just fall at any time. What else is top of mind for you for that area in the event of an emergency? You know, people need to get out. Well, I think aside from the MOU that is still under discussion right now, I definitely think that trying to continue to chase down federal funding has to be my goal. I was hopeful um, during Kai Kahele's term that we could get something because he actually did get us listed on the military appropriations list for projects that needed to be funded. And the, the fund wasn't actually to repair it. It was to do a complete study of what it would take and how much money because people will throw out random numbers like it's going to cost $300 million to fix the road. Like, how did you get to that number? Like, who, what engineer said what about what part of the road and how did it equal 300 million and it's because whenever you do get an appropriation you have to be really clear on what it's for in 2010 um former senator inoy got 2.5 million to build a bridge in a washed out area of the navy side so he had to say this road is gone this is how much it's going to cost it was 2.5 million obviously no one's going to expend 300 million on a road that's majority of the time closed, but I would argue that there's about 1.5 miles on the Navy side that need to be repaired and not the whole entire road. So if we were just focusing on the problematic areas, what does that look like? And is that some type of funding that we could get annually until it's repaired 
so that in the event of the emergency that we could do more than just emergency vehicles and that if um, civilians pass through there, that it would be safe. So the Army controls the access to that area, but the Navy owns how much land over there? So on the Lualuale side, if you're entering Kolekole from Waianae, five miles of the road is owned by the Navy. And then there's a, a gate. And then three miles of the road is owned by the Army, and that goes into Schofield. The Navy and the Army operate off of missions. So they don't get to make unilateral decisions about where they spend their money or what they do. They are given directives from Congress and they are given money to spend on those directives and they follow that. So congressionally or even at the presidential level, somebody would have to direct this Navy area, which if you're unfamiliar with Lualuale, no one lives there. So in previous years, people actually lived on the base on the White and I side. They have a fire station there. They have old barracks where people live. They have housing on. It's still all there. It looks like a ghost town, but Without a mission and without a reason to be there, they're not going to continue to get infusions of congressional money because there's no mission to be accomplished there. They still have those two radio towers in the valley. Yes. But aside from that, everything else is vacant. So it's going to be a pretty hard ask to say, hey, we need these appropriations to this vacant military base because the community needs this road to be annually taken care of. And not only in times of emergency, because when the emergency happens and we're using the MOU, that's not the time to figure out if the road is passable or not. So I think that that's a very important conversation is that even though there's no mission for this Lualuale naval base, that this road serves as an important piece in our community to access and safety. And therefore, there needs to be congressional appropriations annually given to upkeep the road. That was Honolulu Council Member Andrea Topolo, who represents the west side of Oahu, talking about wildfire risks and the willingness of the Army to open emergency access to Kolikoli Pass in the event of a disaster. Nearly 200 businesses across the state rely on HPR underwriting to reach engaged listeners like you. Mahalo to Hawaii Island Community Health Center and Resource Suites. They believe, just as you do, in the power of public radio. See a full list of our underwriters at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from Kahilu Theater, presenting the Hawaii Island debut of Rapa Nui classical pianist Mahani Teave, Sunday, November 5th at 3 p.m. In person or on demand tickets at kahilu.org. Our reality check today is a follow-up to a story that Honolulu Civil Beat featured last week. It has to do with native seeds. Reporter Thomas Heaton joins us today. Good morning, Thomas. Good morning, Catherine. Yes, so you went and you checked with our local seed banks. I did. So, of course, we have had the news of the United States Department of Agriculture's Natural Resources Conservation Service 
um, and their plan essentially to sow seeds across the fire affected areas on Maui with invasive grasses or the seeds of um, non-native species which is kind of come as a bit of a surprise to many but I reached out to the seed banks I reached out to some botanists and they were perhaps less surprised than the general public because the reality is is Hawaii doesn't have enough seed banking facilities doesn't have enough seeds to really actually do this landscape scale restoration that I guess the public would really like to see yeah I mean you know it does seem like why are we doing the same thing planting non-natives which help to provide fuel for those wildfires but if the reality is we just simply have not banked enough native seeds then what do you do right because you don't want all that toxic ash and soil to get into the ocean of course yeah it really does provide a bit of a quandary for 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 everyone i guess um one one thing is is that you know this idea that we can re-sow the land with native seeds is um perhaps a little bit romantic because you know the 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 these non-native grasses have really taken over for a reason that's because they're able to crowd out those native species because they grow quickly they have these things called seed banks themselves under the ground um, where they have a natural stock of seeds and after fire they just recover so quickly and they grow tall and the native species just have a really hard time growing up yeah these are very these are very aggressive plants and they just take over yeah, they absolutely do. So one thing that the uh, um, USDA has told me is that they are going to try and get some local native seeds, first of all, but they realize that the stock's not there. So what they're going to actually have to do is they're actually going to probably have to go to the mainland to get the, the seeds of the grasses that were there already and that helped fuel the fires. And it's a shame because we've heard for, you know, a long time, save your seeds. You know, we have a need for seeds. And and here is one instance where, boy, if we had, you know, a deep bank of natives, it could certainly do the trick. But now we've got to turn to oh, the non-natives, sadly, uh, to protect the environment. Yeah. And one, one key thing here was that, you know, it was told to me by Matthew Kerr, um, from the Department of Land and Natural Resources, as well as Clay Traunick, a wildland fire researcher at University of Hawaii, is that it's not necessarily that we don't have native species and that we haven't been doing the work here in Hawaii to conserve the native species that exist, but the focus has really been on the rare native species, the ones that are facing extinction. So that's where a lot of the funding has been. That's where the funding opportunities for these conservation groups exist. But they haven't been for these species that are known as common or matrix species. And that's kind of the species that lay the foundation for these ecosystems. They're the ones like koa, ohia, aali'i, piligras. And those are the ones that haven't really been, I guess, deposited (laughs) in the seed banks at the scale that is required to have this kind of landscape scale restoration post-fire especially. And then, of course, Maui is facing this very kind of difficult situation where there were these pre-existing concerns with deer, which, of course, are 
a massive issue on the landscape because they indiscriminately just nip away at everything that's there. Yes, and you know, when we were uh, uh, doing stories about the seed banks, you know, I know the the one on the Big Island, I mean, they make seeds available to landowners, right, if they want to uh, uh, plant uh, natives, uh, you know, on their uh, property. Uh, but like you said, you know, uh, a lot of these other programs are focused on the endangered species, like, you know, up at uh, uh, Schofield, you know, where the, the DOD, the Department of Defense, actually funds a program for the natural resource uh, program up there. But, yeah, it's just a dilemma that we find ourselves in. Absolutely. And one, one thing that Matthew Kerr kind of reiterated to me was that it's not all lost, you know. Um, so one, one thing is is that, you know, it, if, if there is a will and there is he's essentially translated to me that if there's a will there's definitely a way because it just costs a lot of money there, there needs to be teams of people on each island going out there going out into the un, kind of disturbed areas of Hawaii collecting seeds persistently and bringing those seeds back sorting them through and making sure that they're deposited in the right places so that they can be planted in the right places at the right time and it's the right plant. Yeah, it's and very... And then on top of that, there is, of course, this idea that um, it's just going to cost money. So to upgrade all of the um, seed banking facilities that exist here in Hawaii and have a centralized seed bank that can kind of take all of these workhorse species, he's estimating between 10 to $15 million. Wow. Well, hopefully they can work out some program where if we did need to use the non-natives first, that there's a follow-up plan to, to go in there with uh, natives later on. But thank you so much, Thomas. Thank you, Catherine. We have been talking to Civil Beat's Thomas Heaton. You can head to civilbeat.org to read his story. Freight farming is an agricultural method that turns a shipping container into a mobile hydroponic farm. Right now, nearly 90% of Hawaii's food is imported, but Oahu resident Sasha Leitner hopes her new business, Hawaii Greens Freight Farms, can help change that. She first learned about the method during the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey in 2017, and after years of working on obtaining one, her first container arrives in a few weeks. Leitner recently made a trip to our studio along with Hanaho'oli school student Stella Pakala to talk to the Conversations with Russell Subiono about the benefits of freight farming. Let's try and like visualize or explain what it looks like. I think everybody knows what a shipping container looks like. <laughs> when you walk into it, mm -hmm. I think the unique design is this vertical grow, yes. right? So I imagine that there are systems in place that allow for the ag to grow vertically using the drip system, right? Yes. And, and you said that the each container is equal to a, about two and a half acres? Yeah, at full capacity, there's about 8,500 plants growing sometimes more depending on whether you're intercropping or not and how large of the crops that you're growing are. But it's about 8,000 plants okay. when it's fully going, which is a substantial amount if you think about it. 
when you first walk into the container on the left-hand side, they have the nursery station, which is a sprouting station. And the company successfully sprouted everything from leafy greens to herbs to edible flowers, beets, kohlrabi, all different kinds of root vegetables. But they've also been able to sprout trees in the nursery station. Now you can't put it into the hydroponic drip system to develop into full capacity, but you can sprout in that way through the nursery system, which here we have a need for more trees always. It can only benefit us to have nursery projects Mm -hmm. that are looking at weather resilient installations. And so I imagine that leafy vegetables are probably the most conducive to this form of agriculture, lettuce, herbs, things like that. Yes. What about larger crops, bell peppers, cucumbers, bananas, watermelons? So bananas are pretty much a tree. So (laughs) granted, you can sprout that Mm -hmm. way, but to actually grow to capacity, it's not a realistic grow. They've successfully grown tomatoes in them, and I think small-scale peppers. They've done beets and turnips. Kohlrabi, I know, was a really good one for them as well. But things that vine, it isn't the best space to do that in. And so even though it might not be able to produce some of the the larger or heavier crops, Mm -hmm. it could still take the crops that are grown in there off the table in, in the sense of taking it out of the ground and allowing for other crops to be put into the ground. If you think about it, your leafy greens and your herbs usually require the largest amount of pesticides Mm -hmm. just because of rat lungworm and all of the whitefly issues that we have. So taking those high pesticide ridden vegetables out of the ground and putting them into containers, we can actually look at our agriculture space and focus on kalo and other hardier, more large scale agriculture needs for that space that actually require less pesticides. I read some other benefits as well. You can produce the produce close to the customer, year round growing, water and space optimization. So there are much more benefits in terms of infrastructure and, you know, farm to table. I mean, literally, right? You could just- Yeah. Local. Yeah. Like (laughs) literally, you can have it within the building a chef can go harvest and put it on the table in minutes, you yeah. know, if you have it located within the vicinity of where you are serving it. And if we're minimizing how far our food is traveling, we're also zeroing out our carbon footprint for food production. And agriculture is one of the largest carbon producers for our state. And if you're minimizing it by plugging these into a solar grid, you're actually benefiting the state because your your greens aren't traveling. Most people who buy greens from Costco, you know, you get those giant boxes. Right. You open them up and you have, what, days to eat it because it's taken so long for them to arrive here. These container farms, if you harvest them with the root, you're bagging them, you're transporting them to where they're going to be eaten. The freight farm company has said that they can last two to three weeks properly refrigerated with their root. But this would actually enable us to place them in areas that could potentially be isolated. So a contain a 40-foot container to be dropped in where we can see road loss is yeah. actually something that can benefit communities 
on the back end of a big weather incident. As yep. soon as you plug them in yeah. from seed to sprout to harvest is about six to eight weeks because you have 24 hour grow periods. You're mm-hmm. regulating how much light they're getting. Mm-hmm. You're regulating the nutrients and the food. And the thing about these smart systems is, yeah. is that they're tracking everything. And so teaching on them is actually even cooler because you're tracking the carbon that the plants are consuming. You're tracking the nutrients that they're using, the light and how fast they're growing. And you can swing it for multiple different age groups Mm -hmm. to actually teach classes of all different varieties on these systems. Before our, our interview, we were talking about the tech component to this and you mentioned some of the new technology. I imagine that the tech component could also be a hook for our younger generation to be interested in agriculture. And you brought Stella with you today (laughs) who goes to Hanaoli School and uh, she's been helping you in this process, right? Yes. Stella, what is interesting about these freight farms to you as a young person? It's interesting to me because I love like technology and because I've kind of born into that generation. So I think it's so cool that when you walk in, you don't kind of have to guess what you have to do. You like sign into the computer and it tells you everything you have to do for the day and you can just do it like that. I think it's really cool how it tracks each plant and how they grow because it can grow so many different plants. And I think it's super cool that can run on like just solar power and you don't have to have like a carbon footprint. Sasha, you know, with with any new technology, it always comes with challenges as well. Many benefits, but it also comes with challenges. What do you anticipate being the challenges that you have to overcome to be able to do freight farming here in Hawaii? I'm sure a lot of it is going to be the pushback about the hydroponic systems, but I think that Hawaii finally turned the corner of accepting hydroponics as being a realistic solution for our agriculture community. Ideally, I'd love to see these in the schools because they'd be excellent grow spaces, food resources, and education platforms for our public school systems and private schools, but ideally for the public schools because it would only add to the food resources for our kids. And you've been on this journey for quite some time now, yes. right? You, I know your first container is arriving in a few weeks, yes. right? How long have you been working on this? Like I said, since Hurricane Harvey, yeah. I kind of got into it and I've been advocating pretty hard. I've, I've approached many of our community organizations from Lions Clubs to Rotary Clubs to Climate Action Committee to... Malama, Manoa, I've, I've spoken to many, many different organizations advocating for this as a solution for weather resilient agriculture. I've been lucky enough to have a lot of support from the Farmers Union and a bunch of different individuals who have come behind me to understand my mission. And Stella, you, you've been helping Sasha for a few years now. What has been most impressive to you about this journey that she's been on? I think it's so cool that she started as like an Instagram post and now it's coming in like a couple weeks <laughs> and we're going to be able to harvest in like maybe like a month. Um, Sasha really inspired me because Sasha's been working on it for eight years. I've been working on it for about like six years because she's had to face like a lot of like challenges, especially like 
finding someone that could partnership with her to be able to purchase the container. I know that was the one that stumped us for a really long time. But yeah, she really inspired me because like she didn't stop or like give up. How many people can one container feed? The weekly harvest is about 150 pounds of produce. So that's a pretty substantial amount of people. And if we start looking at our communities and implementing these based on need, we can be ahead of a problem. And by doing so, I think a lot of the spaces that these will live in will be potential shelter points if we do have a large hurricane or heavy weather system. And I think that that really will help with that next phase of getting more in place. Can you talk about when you anticipate your container to arrive? And I know you had a big ask to make. So the container will have a home. It will eventually be living in an affordable housing development on the west side that will be breaking ground shortly. But I have about a year, maybe a year and a half, where it can be temporarily housed. We've already worked out that we'll be working with Kaimana Beach Hotel to sell the produce to keep our container running in the intern before it moves into its permanent housing. But we do need a location. Ideally, I'd really like to get a space that's closer to Kaimana Beach and hopefully linked to solar. So your container arrives in a few weeks. You do have a permanent home for it out on the west side, but that won't be ready for about a year and a half. So you're looking for someone who has some space for the container to be placed temporarily for about a year and a half, preferably close to Kaimana Beach Hotel. Yep. What's the best way to get a hold of you? Instagram would be probably the best bet. My name's Sasha Leitner and it's Hawaii Greens Freight Farm. And if you just DM me, it's probably the easiest way to get a hold of me. Sasha, Stella, thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you. Thank you. That was Hawaii Green Freight Farm, Sasha Leitner and her pal, Stella Pakalakakin, to HPR's Russell Subiono. We'll have a link to learn more about Leitner's journey on the conversation page of our website later today. One of the greatest 800-meter runners in track and field history was banned from the sport for having naturally high levels of testosterone. Now she's written about it. I want all those young girls out there, they must not fear rejection. They must accept themselves for who they are. The two-time Olympic champion from South Africa, Castor Semenya, next time on The World. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. And
And now it's time for the haunting answer to today's backyard quiz. Earlier we asked you about a spot in Kahala where a faceless ghost was said to appear in the ladies' restroom. The tale started circulating in 1959 when an article by uh, Bob Krause appeared in the Honolulu Advertiser. As the story goes, a girl left her car around midnight to go to the restroom to put on fresh lipstick. When she looked in the mirror, she saw a figure behind her with long hair, no face, no legs, and only half a body. When the girl turned around, there was nobody behind her. And when the uh, the door slammed shut and locked, the girl screamed and fainted and was later taken to a hospital to be treated for shock. The, surfe- the story resurfaced in 1982 during a uh, radio talk show where several callers claimed to have seen the faceless lady at Wailai Drive-In, the answer to today's backyard quiz. Some claim it to be an obake or Japanese ghost that lives in a nearby cemetery. Others chalk it up to a hoax. But today, Wailai Drive-In no longer exists. It was replaced by a housing development, but some still claim to see the faceless ghost around Kahala Mall. And congrats to our winner, Les from Wailai Iki. You got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. If you've served in the military, you learn quickly that your time and your schedule are no longer your own. That's the focus of today's StoryCorps segment with HBR host John Zach. The StoryCorps team was in Hawaii last year as part of its Military Voices Initiative. It collected local stories from across the islands, and we're featuring some of them over the next few weeks leading up to Veterans Day. Take a listen. This is StoryCorps, the Military Voices Initiative. Michael Last was working and going to night school when the Army informed him that it had other plans for his future. During basic training, Michael discovered that nonconformity in any form was not an option, even on his day off. Here he is at the Lyman Museum in Hilo, talking to Cole Johnston. Hi, good afternoon. My name is Michael L. Last. I'm 75 years old. My name is Cole Johnston. I am 24 years old. Michael, just to get us started, um, bring me back to, to the beginning of your military service. So when were you drafted or, or enlist, and uh, what led up to that moment? I was drafted in um, August 22nd, 1966, way back when. I was in school at the time, but I guess they didn't think I was serious because I was going at night working full-time, school at night, and they figured, we want you. And I went for a pre-induction physical. And on that day, I had a report to Whitehall Street in Lower Manhattan. And 730 days to the day, I was discharged. You you went into the military one of three reasons. Mm -hmm. One, you enlisted. Mm -hmm. Two, (laughs) you were drafted. And three, the judge gave you a choice, (laughs) jail or, or military. Wow. But really? whoever joined, whoever went in the military, they made the wrong mistake. They realized because after 30 <laughs> days, if they were in prison, they would have been out already. But hey. So you get to, to basic training and uh, you're surrounded by all these different people. Yeah. And what was it grueling? Was it challenging? What was it? What was a typical day like? <laughs> Oh, gosh. We got up early in the morning. I remember that. It was eight weeks, and it was really, to me, it was very 
taxing then. Now I look back, well, that wasn't so bad. <laughs> so one of the things I do remember about basic training, even though it was only eight weeks, you know, my religion is atheist. Mm -hmm. I was surprised that the, the entire military service didn't treat atheists equally. Mm -hmm. I mean, what I mean by that, I wasn't looking for any special favor, but, you know, su Sunday, we had a day off, and they expected people to go to church or temple, wherever they wanted to go, which I thought was good, but I wanted to sleep. <laughs> when they found out I was missing this, they said, we don't care what you believe, but you got to go to one of these organizations. And I said, well, that's kind of stupid, I mean, because I don't want to go. Well, then you're going for God duty. To me, it was pretty severe, you know, you, you can't sleep. You got to go to here or pull guard duty. And I said, okay, I'll pull guard duty reluctantly. The StoryCorps Military Voices Initiative is a collaboration with Hawaii Public Radio. I'm your host and producer, John Zach. Local support for StoryCorps, the Military Voices Initiative, comes from Hawaii Pacific University with military campus programs for service members and their families on base, on campus, and online, hpu.edu military. Well, that's our show for today. Tomorrow, we wrap up our look at the battle against the dreaded little fire ant. Ever been bitten by them? Share your sting story. Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also find the conversation segments anywhere you tune in for podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.